Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Margaret Atwood is one of the most celebrated writers of our time. In novels such as The Handmaid's Tale, Alias Grace, and recently The Mad Adam Trilogy, she explores societal values and ideals and projects possible futures. In her role as literary lion, she speaks truth to power and doesn't suffer fools. Over the course of the past three decades, I've been lucky to interview Margaret Atwood several times. The very first time was on February 22, 1989, in a hotel room in San Francisco while Margaret Atwood was on tour for her novel, Cat's Eye. The Handmaid's Tale had recently made her an international literary star, and a film with Faye Dunaway and Robert Duvall was about to go into production. Joining me for the interview was my regular co-host at the time, Richard A. Lupoff, along with our special guest, novelist Lisa Goldstein. You began publishing your novels relatively late, thought it was because Canada was the way it was in the 60s. In 1960, in the whole of English Canada, there were five novels published in the entire year by Canadian writers. We are not talking about a flourishing novel market in the 60s. The form that you could get published quite readily was, was poetry, and that was because it was cheap and short. <laughs> Publishers were hesitant to publish Canadian novelists. They thought there was no market and they thought they had to have a British publisher or an American publisher in tandem with them, but then those folks would say, this is too Canadian. Can't you change it and set it in New York, etc.? That was the situation. It started to be a real possibility for novelists at the very end of the 60s, and it really burgeoned in the 70s, but I was writing both all along. I wrote Hannibal Woman in 1964. And you couldn't get it published until years well, later. Well, I couldn't get it published. I sent it to McClellan and Stewart, and they lost the manuscript for two years. <laughs> <laughs> it was really do-it-yourself time in <laughs> the publishing world in Canada then. For prose fiction in Canada in the 60s, the real way to, quotes publish it was through a radio program called Anthology, which was about the only place you could actually get paid for your writing. And they would do... Uh, poetry, and they would also do short stories, but of course they couldn't do novels. Did you work for them? Well, you didn't work for them. You sent stuff in and they broadcast it. In fact, the very first time I ever heard a poem of mine read by somebody else was on CBC Anthology. They used to get these actresses with these heavy, melodramatic, mid-Atlantic accents, and I just about <laughs> fall off, fell off my chair laughing. It wasn't a positive experience. It was professional. <laughs> We want to talk about Cat's Eye because that's your most recent book. But if you don't mind, before we get to that, I'd like to back up to your previous one, The Handmaid's Tale, which, to my perception at least, was a, a major breakthrough book for you in terms of reaching a very large readership. Do you, do you feel that way about it? Well, it certainly did that. It wasn't entirely anticipated by, by me that it would do that. In fact, I felt it was quite a risky book to write 
and that I could have got a lot of squash tomatoes thrown at me from various areas if I hadn't done it well. And you notice that I'm saying modestly that I did do it well. It could have been sensationalistic, or on the other hand, it could have been very boring because utopias do sometimes get into tours of the sewage plant and in our society. We do it this way, whereas you, you, you rotten people used to do it that way. That kind of uh, thing goes on a lot in books about future society, so I tried to avoid that. Anyway, much to my surprise, I didn't get nearly as many tomatoes thrown at me as I thought I might. Did you get some flack from fundamentalist groups? Surprisingly little. Hmm. In fact, almost none. But the, the movie is currently being shot, and that may indeed happen. But of course, the, any fundamentalist group existing today would be to the left of my people in the book, and my people would take care to eliminate them quite swiftly because they would be the competition. For instance, all Southern Baptists would, would have to go and that's why the Southern Baptists are holding out in a guerrilla operation down in Georgia somewhere in the in the book, and my lot are trying to get rid of them because history of revolutions through the ages, for instance, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, various groups have banded together to overthrow the powers that be, but then once they've done it, of course, there's the power struggle. And the Southern Baptists would just have to go. Sorry. And, and generally, the more radicals wipe out the more moderates well, after the revolution. Well, no, that's not necessarily not. so at all. The ones who get the upper hand wipe out the ones that they can wipe out, as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> Had uh, you read much science fiction, particularly dystopian science fiction? I'd read a lot uh, um, over the years, never thinking I would write one, but... I think it all started when I read Animal Farm by mistake as a child, thinking yeah. it was about animals, uh, and was very, very upset when that horse died. Boxer, I mean, oh, that yes. that really disturbed me a lot. Uh, I think I must have been 10 or 11, and I wept. So there was that, and then when I was in high school, I read 1984 and Brave New World, and when I was in university, I went back and read a lot of the previous ones, or a lot of 19th century utopias, which are utopias rather than dystopias, uh, William Morris, and, and a very strange one called um, A Crystal Age by W.H. Hudson, which um, tackles reproductive problems by making everybody sort of like ants, neutral except for a mom and dad, which are head of these rather nice English country houses. Every, every utopia in England, of course, has to have a rather nice country house at the center of it. So I did have quite a background, going back to Plato's Republic and, of course, going on up through Moore's Utopia and on up. So it's, it's definitely in this apostolic succession. That's of, of, of absolutely stuff. right. <laughs> the character of Serena Joy... Which it, will be played by Faye Dunaway. It struck me as a combination of Phyllis Schlafly and uh, Tammy, Tammy Baker. Did you have any, any model in mind for that? One has a general model. I think... It, the character is an answer to the question, how come if you think woman's place is in the home, you're not in the home, but instead out there making rather a nice career out of saying woman's place is in the home? I think it's an answer to that question, which has always bothered me. You know, yeah. if Mar Margaret Thatcher thinks woman's place is in the home, why isn't she there? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and in our country, Phyllis Schlafly is, has 
made a major career of saying well, women's places. They always the say, well, I'm only doing this until the battle is won. <laughs> oh, they'll go back <laughs> and put on I'm sacrificing myself. I'm sacrificing yeah. my chocolate chip cookies uh, <laughs> until the battle is won. Coming from a Canadian perspective, which you've been frequently identified as somewhat of a nationalist writer, are you comfortable with that tag? Well, okay, let's talk about tags. And let's talk about what nationalism means in different countries. Now, in this country, it probably means folks who trot out the American flag and bash people over the head with the flagpole. An aura of, of being somewhat right-wing. This is not the case in Canada, uh, which is in a different historical geographical and political position, being a very small country, right north of a very large country. So cultural nationalism in Canada came out of the fact that people could not get published in their own marketplace, or they could, they could not make Canadian films, they could not get them distributed. Mm -hmm. It was being shut out of your own country. That's where it came from. So people banded together and they formed things like the Writers' Union, to get what you would consider taken-for-granted rights. We had no agents. Publishers would simply say to us, this is the standard contract sign here, and nobody knew any better because there was nobody to bargain for writers. The geographical distances are such that a lot of writers didn't know one another, and they couldn't say what was in your contract. So the publishers had it all their own way. Similarly, copies of our books were coming across the border illegally, uh, being remaindered by jobbers. The writer got nothing, the Canadian publisher got nothing, and there was a loophole in Canadian law that allowed this to happen. So we had to get together and lobby for those kinds of things just to get what you've got already. It's the story of minority groups. I'm sure you've heard it all before, coming from other minority groups. It was the same in Canada. So that's where Canadian nationalism comes from, the simple statement, I exist. Not, I am better, not, I am going to rub out everybody else, but I exist. It seems to us to be a kind of elementary thing. How did your initial breakthrough come about? Getting published? Yeah. I started reading poetry. Well, I, I published in the college magazine, what can I tell you? Yeah. Oh, and then when I was about 19 or 20, I sent a poem anonymously to one of the five, count them five, literary magazines that then existed in English Canada in the year 1960. If you got rejected by all five, that was it. <laughs> so, and I got it published. Guy didn't know me. Very nice it was. I used initials so nobody would know I was a girl. Then I started reading poetry in a place called the Bohemian Embassy, which was a coffee shop. I used to get letters from political organizations thinking that it was, in fact, the Bohemian Embassy. <laughs> <laughs> this was in Toronto? Yes, it was. It was up a flight of stairs, and it was quite dark, and always getting closed down by the fire department. And the toilets opened right onto the main room. And so you would be in the throes of your most poignant line when somebody would flush the toilet and open the door. <laughs> and I felt after that, I can do anything. They also had an espresso machine, which, just as you were at the most touching part, would go... <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I made my breakthrough. Now you're wondering about how I got my first novel right, published. Yeah. I published a short story in a magazine called Alphabet, which was typeset by hand by a poet in London, Ontario, called James Rainey. 
And this is what literary activity was like, you see. It was yeah. a wonderful magazine, but they typeset it all by hand, him and his students. It was before all these technologies that we have today. Mm-hmm. And a publisher read it and said, if you have a novel, could we see it? So I finished my novel, and I sent it to them, and they said, we will publish it. And then I just didn't hear from them for two years, <laughs> being naive. I didn't know it was supposed to take that long. So I was, I suppose you could say, very lucky in that respect. I don't mean that the, I was lucky that they lost it for two years. I mean that they wanted it and accepted it. And through that publisher in Canada, he sent it to a publisher in the States that he dealt with, namely Atlantic Monthly Press, and it was also published in England. So first time lucky. I did have a, an unpublished novel that I had written before that, which was too gloomy for the Canadians in 1963. Has that ever been published? No. Will it ever be published? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it did have, um, it had some rather charming features. The, the, I think it was too gloomy because it ended with the protagonist who was female wondering whether or not to push a man off the roof. And uh, this was a bit too strong. Well, I want to get back to what we were talking about. That would tie in. We were talking about tags. You've been called a feminist writer, too. And many other things. Is that something you would agree with? Depends what we mean by the F word. Depends (laughs) who's saying it and what they mean. I think it's now a word that has spread out and has developed all these secondary meanings. I think it also depends a lot what country we are in. For instance, in England middle-class British women are quite frightened by the word feminist because to them it means somebody who is not polite. (laughs) Somebody lacking in manners, which is a fearsome thing to be if you're a middle-class English woman. So you have to go about saying, yes, I would curtsy to the Queen, a simple point of of etiquette, but yes, I am also in favor of uh, women being human beings, uh, equal pay for equal work, women having the vote, women being educated, women having life choices, all those things. I came across an an essay of yours recently. That is, was an early essay, but I came across it recently. (laughs) On on H. Ryder Haggard, which has absolutely floored me. Would you talk about that period in, in your life a bit? Well, once upon a time, long, long ago, I was a graduate student. And I was a graduate student at Harvard, which thus gave me the setting for The Handmaid's Tale which is set in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, and the wall that the bodies dangle off is the Harvard wall. And Harvard was not amused. They wrote quite a sniffy review of this book. Uh, They didn't think it was funny that I put the Secret Service in Widener Library. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All the people who were at graduate school with me thought it was a scream. So I had to do a thesis, and I chose to do... I was a Victorianist, which is one reason why I got to read all those... 19th century utopias and dystopias. I chose to do my thesis on the English metaphysical romance. You may not have heard of this, and it's no wonder because it's a term I made up. Very useful thing to be able to do if you're in the field of literary criticism. Mm -hmm. And the English metaphysical romance was that body of works, which is not science fiction, but it's not realism either, and it involves supernatural personages Uh, with magical powers, and one person's theory is that this would not have been possible in any country except an Anglican one. In other words, you you, uh, 
you remove the real presence, but you keep the ritual. <laughs> so people have supernatural powers, but they're not God. And Ryder Haggard, of course, is best known for his novel She, which features a woman with all these amazing supernatural powers. So she was part of my thesis, and so was Ryder Haggard. Do you think there's any point in a contemporary person of our age reading Haggard? Well, it's a ripping good story. She is. And for women in particular, I think it's quite fascinating because this is a superwoman explored in some depth. And um, like a lot of Ryder Haggard's female characters, or, or shall I say, he has a habit of dividing them into women who are powerful but have a component of evil in them and wimps, good wimps, uh, quite Victorian, but he takes it to an extreme. However, there's no doubt that she is the admirable one in this book, although she murders people and does other awful things. And he goes on to write sequels in which she becomes practically beatified. She becomes practically sanctified in the sequels. Jung was very fond of she, full of threshold imagery. And you know what happens to her at the end. It's sort of uh, a cosmetics ad in reverse. She, <laughs> she, she goes into the fire of life once too often and has a backwards effect, and all in an instant she crinkles up, having been a 2,000-year-old beautiful woman. She crinkles up into a sort of human raisin and uh, expires. But this then connects to, to Lost Horizon by uh, Hilton. He wrote that later. Cat's Eye uh, is in the autobiography quote-unquote, of a painter, yet there is probably a great deal of Margaret Atwood in that. So people keep telling me. <laughs> is there? <laughs> well, my high school principal's in it. Does that count? What about the ravine? Well, there's lots of ravines in Toronto. In fact, Nan Talese, who's my editor, came up and was, and was staying with Anna Porter, who is Doubleday Seal in Canada, and Nan said, of course, she just made up the ravine. There couldn't possibly be such a place. And Anna said... Look out the back window. <laughs> it's right out there. <laughs> Ravines are very mythic in Toronto because they're always the place where you weren't supposed to go down into, but there are a number of them. One of the things that got me about the book was how you managed to grab hold of, of childhood visions, childhood images, childhood smells, more than any other book I've ever read. How did you manage to go back in time and bring that up? It, it, it astonished me. It was like reading about my own childhood in a certain way. You see, it doesn't matter whether it's my childhood or not. That's it right. matters whether it's yours. That's right. How did I do it? Let's just say that when you're writing any character, of course, you attempt to be there with yeah. the character, whoever it may be. And uh, I have written many different kinds of characters, some of them men. That was a bit more of a, a little bit more effort. But, of course, I have a very detailed memory, much to the disgust of other people that I come in contact with sometimes when you say, but on June the 10th, 1978, you said such and such. <laughs> How can they <laughs> contradict you? But some of it, of course, was research. In other words, you think you remember something, or you think that something ought to have been there, but then you have to go back and check to see whether it really was yeah. there when you say it was. I got at first, initially I got the avocado and harvest gold refrigerators wrong. 
or let us say there were some Harvest Gold and Avocado Green refrigerators in the book in the wrong year. So I had to go back and check those, and it turns out they didn't come in until the mid-60s. I had placed them in the late 50s. In the late 50s, it was aqua and pink. <laughs> Populux refrigerator. Yes. These are the kinds of things that can trip you up. So I had, for instance, the mausoleum scene where Elaine goes into the cemetery with her friend Cordelia and scares the living daylights out of Cordelia by pretending to be a vampire oh, in their adolescence. I had the mausoleum there, but I had the wrong people in it. I thought it was the Christie's Biscuit people. So originally it was Christie's Biscuit, and then I, and it was Mr. and Mrs. Biscuit laid out in their finery in the, in the mausoleum, uh, who turned into vampires at night, which I got quite a kick out of. But I had to go to the cemetery and look, and although the Christie's have a, a thing there, it wasn't the one that I wanted. But it turned out to be even better because it turned out to be the Eaton family mausoleum, the one that I wanted. Which is the big department store. The big department store that had the catalogs full of corsets. Um, there's there's one scene that occurs in Cat's Eye, which, which is almost identical to a scene in Lady Oracle. I wonder if this was deliberate. It involves mm -hmm. the ravine, the rickety bridge, the abandonment of the narrator by her three friends. Yeah, I don't think rescue. it's identical at all. Okay. I think there's some of the same elements in it, but you're asking, did I ever get abandoned in a ravine? No, but I know people who did. So there you go. And you this, should see the mail yeah. I'm getting as one who was almost buried alive by my friends when I was nine, <laughs> as one who was almost drowned, as one who was packed into a snowbank, all from women, as one who used to peel all the skin off her feet. Yes. A lot of foot peelers out there. <laughs> <laughs> that was an incredible image. That well, I was wondering if you were getting any response from feminists on Cat's Eye, considering well, you're showing sort of the underside of girls' friendships I think in a very only, realistic way, I think. But. Yes, and, and so does just about everybody else. And for this reason, I haven't had platoons of, uh, quotes, feminists. The reason I put quotes feminists is that I'm using this word the way other people often use it to mean scary women with baseball bats or something. And I've actually never met women like this, although I know a lot of people would consider themselves feminists. Anyway, none of these scary people with baseball bats have arrived at my door, and I think one reason they haven't is that they've all been little girls, <clears throat> and the other reason they haven't is that if they are uh, feminists working with other women, they know whereof I speak. I checked it out. I always check the manuscripts with friends of mine who are readers. And I checked it out with one woman who happens to be a judge, who happens to have done a, an extensive report on um, equality in the workplace. And I said, what about this? You know, is this going too far? And she says, absolutely not. Handmaid's Tale, you mentioned, is going to be a movie. Uh, did you, do you have any input on that? Input? Well, um, the script was written by Harold Pinter. Whoa. And... Have you read the script? Oh, yes, I've read the script, and I met with him before he wrote it, and we talked a lot, and I've also talked with the director. The input, I would say, is that I'm the only historical authority on the period. <laughs> <laughs> Are but you happy with what they're doing with it? Well, you, 
It's like the Greeks call no man happy until he is dead. You don't, (laughs) you won't know whether you're happy or not until you see the movie. Because a script for a movie is only a sort of skeleton. And as we all know, movies involve a great many people. The actors, the directors, the uh, costume designers, the cinematographer, all of those people. And more particularly, the film editor. So you can have all these wonderful scenes. I've written scripts, as you may have guessed. You can have all these wonderful scenes that you think are just brilliant, and they'll end up as coils of uh, celluloid on the cutting room floor. Have you had any contact with the director? Is that uh, Volker Schlondorf? Yes, yes, I think he's wonderful. I'd like to have him cloned and distributed to all major studios. They should all have one of this man. Do you have any other uh, any other movie stuff around? Movie stuff around. You mean, are any of my other books being considered for or the any world scripts of films? that you've done? Yes, well, Heaven on Earth was done, and it was not an adaptation from a book. It was the story of all those British orphans who were sent to Canada in the late 19th century and early 20th century through Dr. Bernardo's homes, largely. And um, it followed the sometimes good, sometimes awful lives of several of them fictionalized but developed from about 600 letters from people who had been these people or known these people and that was shown here a little while ago and in Canada earlier than that and in England earlier than that where it topped the ratings. In this country it won a prize which is a statue that is so ugly that the that my co-writer and I keep passing it back and forth. <laughs> Which prize was that? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, it was very nice to win the prize but I shouldn't have said that about the statue. That was ingratitude. Well, what are you writing now? Right now, I don't know how I get into these things, but right now I am editing the best American short stories of 1988 which is published by Houghton Mifflin every year. And a wonderful woman called Shannon Ravenel reads all the stories from all the magazines that publish short stories. And out of those, she picks 120. And out of those, I pick 20. And I'm doing it blind. That is, I asked her to scratch out all the names of the people who wrote them so that I will just be reading the story. And I've now finished reading through all of those, and I'm about to make my final selection. Is that fun? Is it fun? Well, it was more fun than I thought it would be, especially reading them with the names scratched out. And it, it's sort of like one of those guessing games, you know, mm-hmm. so that the fun will be seeing, seeing who they are. <laughs> <laughs> what if they all turn out to be, you the know... The same person. Well, yes, <laughs> or, be or, or some totally un- unknown person that's from a fine small with town. Me. The... That's absolutely fine with me. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way it should be, and I think that unless you do those things, then people who really have talent don't have a way to get in because they don't have a name yet. Yeah. And I suppose it's a sort of tribute to whoever it was who published my first poem, not knowing anything about me, back in 1960. I think I detect, I may be way off base, tell me so, but I think I detect from from your works and from our spending a little time together today that you're essentially a rather private person. And yet, at this point in your career, there's a Margaret Atwood Society. Uh, there was the, the recent uh, Catherine uh, Van Spankeren book, Margaret Atwood, Vision and Forms. And here you are on a, a big publicity tour mm. sponsored by your publisher. Is this 
pleasing to you, or, or how do you respond to it? Well, I'm a very pragmatic person. I was brought up to believe, having been brought up by Nova Scotians from the New England tradition, that you should support yourself in life and that you should not bury your talents under a bushel, quote, unquote. Oh, that is, you should use what talents you have been given and that you should support yourself. And mm -hmm. I always have tried to do that. And doing a publicity tour for my publisher is part of that. And if I didn't do those things, if I didn't make a living at my writing, I would do something else, which I did for 16 years before 1972 when I became self-supporting as a writer. And I did a number of things, among them teaching university. And I would rather do this than teach university. <laughs> not that I don't like the students, but I did not much care for the departmental politics or for the shoddy way in which women faculty members were treated. Do you, do you want to mention which university this was? Four. <laughs> it was widespread. Okay. It was the general attitude. Do you think this has changed? I think you would have to ask women who teach at universities whether it has changed. When I went to Harvard as a graduate student, the Department of English did not hire women. It was simply a stated principle that they did not, which meant that we had an easier time with our oral exams than men did with theirs, because who cared, you know? Oh, <laughs> we boy. could just be cute. I could not read modern poetry to any great extent because it was in the Lamont Library, which was the male undergraduate library. I could get it out if I knew what I was looking for. It was like getting something out of the porno collection, but uh, I could not go in there and root about among the stacks. Did they have boy doors and girl doors to the library? They did then. That's they had boy libraries and We're not talking libraries. about 1915. No, we're talking about 1960. One, two, three, then I took two years break, five, six, and seven. Didn't change till 69. The film Handmaid's Tale opened in March 1990 to little fanfare and quickly vanished. A television adaptation for Hulu aired in 2017 to great acclaim and multiple awards. A second season is in the works. I can be reached at bookwaves.com and you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>